So as his family drove into church one particular Sunday, his attention was caught by that large sign out front, and slowly he started pronouncing the words written in big black letters there and repeating them to himself silently until he felt he had them right. Worship at 11. What's worship, Mommy? Why, that's what we do at church. Jimmy had never been allowed to stay through big people's church, so his mother's answer didn't satisfy him. Could I stay and watch? Well, if you'll be very quiet, she said. So as 11 o'clock came, there was Jimmy sitting between his mother and his father in big people's church. But what did he learn? He found it quite interesting. Various people would stand up on the platform and would speak. Was that worship? He soon found out it wasn't okay to talk, even to ask questions. Because everyone else seemed to be quiet, Jimmy decided that you had to be quiet if you were going to worship. Every once in a while, everyone would stand up to sing. Once, there was even a group of people who stood up on the platform to sing. Was that worship? Sometimes people would bow their heads and pray. What about that? Was that worship? Or what about when that funny-looking plate was passed around and everyone put some money into it? Was that the worship? Or was it when the pastor stood up and talked for what seemed like an awfully long time? Was that the worship part? Which part of the service was worship? Or was all of it? After it was over, on the way home, Jimmy would ask his mother about it. How would she answer? Would she even know how to answer? More to the point, would you know how to answer? Sometimes we can make a lot of assumptions about people and about ourselves and what we do. Even though an essential part of our faith And practice is communicating what it is we believe and do. Don't we often assume that others will simply understand or catch on, especially in the area of worship? Rarely do we teach it. We simply come together, and depending on our customs and our traditions, we call what we do on Sunday mornings our worship, whether it happens or not. And as a consequence, there are a lot of misunderstandings about what worship really is. Of course, that's not unique to us. It's something Jesus himself addressed and addresses in the passage of Scripture I want us to look at this morning, which is found in John chapter 4. It's part of a larger conversation that Jesus was having with an unnamed woman from Samaria. Now, the Samaritans were related to the Jews, descendants of those who were left in the land after Assyria had destroyed most of it. They had intermarried with the surrounding people and were considered by the Jews to be half-breeds and heretics. Not unlike some groups today, they accepted portions of God's word, but they had their own version of it. And these two groups, the Jews and the Samaritans, generally despised one another and refused to mix. Jews would travel days out of their way just to avoid going through Samaria. And yet, at this point in his life and ministry, Jesus chose to go right through it. 
And as he's sitting there waiting for his friends to come back with their lunch, Jesus strikes up a conversation with this unnamed woman. A highly unusual event because in that culture, men and women did not talk to each other in public. And Jews, especially religious Jews, did not talk to Samaritans. But there they were talking, and as they talked, this woman began to get uncomfortable when the topic of her life and lifestyle came up. Have you ever noticed that when you're convicted about something, you try to change subjects? Or maybe even pick a fight, which is what she seems to be trying to do. And to understand what their conversation, about the conversation, it's helpful to understand the history behind the topic that she raises because it brings up a dispute that goes back hundreds of years between the Jews and the Samaritans. It goes back to the founding of the kingdom, actually. When David was king, he made plans and preparations to build the temple in Jerusalem, his capital. After his death, it was his son Solomon that became king and fulfilled his father's wishes. And previous to that time, people would build altars and worship under trees, on the mountains, by the river, wherever they really wished to. But with the temple now, they had a place to gather. It became a rallying place to unite the people in common worship. But then after Solomon's death, the nation split between north and south. The southern portion, called Judah, followed Solomon's son Rehoboam as king. But the northern portion, called Israel, made Jeroboam their king, who set up his capital in Samaria. Jeroboam knew that if he didn't do something about it, over time the people would continue to travel south to Jerusalem to worship, and slowly he would lose control, so he decided to build his own place to worship. And he chose Mount Gerizim, what seemed like an ideal location. It had a long history as a sacred place, going back to Abraham, because it was there near to Shechem that Abraham built that first altar and worshipped the Lord in the Promised Land. It was there that Jacob had worshipped. Moses commanded the people to gather at Mat Gerizim. And Joshua followed up on that by drawing them together. And it was at nearby Shiloh that served as the main religious center for the Israelites prior to David during the time of the judgments. Mount Gerizim's history made it an ideal place to build a temple. And so this heated debate grew up between Jews and Samaritans. Where was the right place to worship? Jerusalem at the temple there or Mount Gerizim? And this woman latches onto that to change the course of the conversation. Verse 19 says, Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Who's right? Where's the right place to truly worship? It reflects a major misunderstanding that has repercussions even today. It reflects a view which identifies worship with the physical expressions of it. It's a place. You gather in a building built for worship. It's at a certain time, 11 or 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings. It's certain ritual and order of service. It's a style. And the physical things, over time, replace 
the relational things of knowing God. A fixation on the physical, whether it's a building or the service itself, replaces a right attitude of our hearts. And Jesus, in essence, says, you're both wrong. It doesn't matter whether it's Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim, because it's not a place, it's in your heart that God cares A major role for the Old Testament prophets was to call the people of God back to him to trust in the Lord, not in their temple or their sacrifices. The Lord even went so far as to say in Malachi 1.10, would someone just shut the doors of the temple so you'd stop lighting useless fires on the altar? Because the people started thinking that what mattered was the physical, going through the motions at the right place at the right time. And it reached a point even where after the temple was destroyed by the armies of Babylon, the people carried off into captivity, didn't know what to do or how to worship, and they went into mourning. And Psalms 134, 7 verse 4 says, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while we're in a foreign land? How can we worship someplace other than in the temple? So Jesus says in verse 21, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The place doesn't matter. It's your heart. So whether it was Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Moses or David or one of the prophets, we need to realize worship has always been about an encounter with God. Roger Lovett said, To worship is to meet. To worship is to encounter and be encountered. To worship is to hear and be heard. Worship is involvement in life. And in scripture, this encounter could happen anytime at any place. It's when people start trying to control and confine it to a building or a time or a ritual that it starts going wrong. Jesus said, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. It's not the activity. It's deeper than that. In spirit and in truth, he said. Another major misunderstanding of worship, one of the more common ones, in fact, equates worship with the music. It makes a distinction between singing, which some consider to be the worship, and everything else that goes on in Sunday mornings. I visited a church once, several years ago, where the first half hour was spent just in singing. They took an intermission, which they called the offering, And then someone stood up at the podium and said, now that we've finished our worship time, it's time for God's word. It makes a clear but misguided distinction between singing and what God says. Yet there's strong evidence that most of us will get our theology more from our music that we sing than the Bible we study. And the scary thing about that is there's a lot of shallowness and bad theology in popular music. In verses 22 and 23, Jesus said, you Samaritans worship a God you don't even know. You cannot know because you don't accept God's revelation of himself. 
in spirit and in truth. True worship. In contrast, he says, true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. You worship, they rejected God's word or in everything but their version of it. And when we're ignorant of who he is because we ignore his word, our worship is going to be affected. As important as things like music is, God's word remains at the center. How can we worship a God we're ignorant about? That's why we keep a Bible open in the front. It's a symbolic way of saying what we do is to be built upon God's word. And this morning we have represented symbolically the written word and the living word as we partake of communion in a little while. Another common misunderstanding of worship is just the opposite of that, though. Rather than equating it with music, it equates worship with the sermon. Those who do this may not even call it a worship service. It's the preaching service. Everything that goes on, the opening prayers, the music, the offering, are merely a warm-up for the main event, the sermon. And it forgets that the preacher is not the focus God is. Worship isn't to be passive. Simply sitting back and listening and then judging what others are doing and deciding if it meets our tastes or not. It's meeting with and engaging a living and present God. Howard Rice points out, in worship, at any point, through the music, or the prayers, or the scripture, or the servants, or the sense of community, or the sacraments, people may discover the reality of God's presence. And the most common block to being open to God is by assuming an attitude of spectator. Another common misunderstanding, perhaps the most common of all, though, understands worship primarily as a feeling or a mood it creates in us. Some will put in a lot of time and effort and resources just to create the right nuances and energy. And they don't consider themselves really to have worshipped unless they're moved emotionally in some way. You know, as you get older, sometimes you look back on your life and you can be really embarrassed about things you did or said or thought That was the type of church I was saved in 40 years ago. It openly judged other churches, Baptists foremost among them, because their worship wasn't high energy. People didn't raise their hands. They didn't speak in tongues. They didn't sway to the music. No one cried out or shouted or laughed. It was just all so subdued. It was dead as far as they were concerned. When I first went off to college... My church warned me about being careful not to attend one of those dead churches. And I'm ashamed to admit it now, but as a young believer at that time, I carried that misunderstanding with me. I moved to Hawaii, went to the UH. Lola and I met, we started dating, and I began attending one of those churches. (laughs) Olivet Baptist Church. It was so I could spend more time with her. That's where I met Jeff. He was the youth choir director. And at that time, at that church, late 70s, Olivet was pretty formal. Contemporary praise songs and choruses were really just new, especially for Baptists, and just beginning to be sung in churches. 
And when I first started attending Olivet, I spent a lot of time during the music, and Lola can testify to this, criticizing the music and the formality and the style I considered dry and boring compared to the church I was saved in. And it took me a while to realize how shallow that was, solely basing my worship on how it made me feel. But worship isn't for me, it's for God. And we forget that when we start thinking about how does it make me feel. And it may shock some of us to hear it, but how you or I feel about it is completely irrelevant. If anything, our worship is determined by how God feels about what's going on, not how we feel. Because God is everything. The word for worship in the Old Testament, meaning simply to bow down in reverence and submission, to prostrate ourselves. In the New Testament, the most common Greek word for worship means to come forward to kiss. In worship, we praise and adore the one who created us, who acted in history to redeem us through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And if, as Karl Barth said, is correct... Worship is the most momentous, most urgent, most glorious action that can take place in human life, then we need to be aware of what it is. When we come together, we sing. But we can sing praise songs all day long and never really worship. Because in itself, our songs are not worship if they're not got for God. We can come together to pray reciting formal and informal prayers, long and short ones, written and spontaneous, and yet never really worship because our prayers in themselves are not worship. We can read scripture and entire chapters and books of the Bible when we are together and yet never worship because in itself, that's not what worship is. Each week we take an offering to support the work of the church and God's work in the world, but that in itself is not worship. The message presented each week, usually the longest part of our service, but that in itself is not worship. These are elements of worship found in Scripture, things we do intended to channel our thoughts and our feelings and our response to God, but in themselves don't worship. We can do them diligently without really coming before the Lord, without recognizing, adoring, and praising Him. Worship goes far deeper than our activity. It's an attitude and an atmosphere, a posturing of our hearts before a living God that makes the activities meaningful, whether we have the feeling or not when we leave. Because it's worship that gives meaning to it all. Andrew Murray said, As long as in our worship of God we're chiefly occupied with our own thoughts and exercises, we're not going to meet God who is spirit. Jesus said, if we're going to worship, it has to be in spirit and in truth. And we can encounter God anytime, any place. It can be in our cars, going into work, or at home, or in the marketplace. In fact, we should be worshiping at those places. Eugene Peterson, worship, Peterson said, worship doesn't just satisfy our hunger, hunger for God, it merely whets our appetite. And that's what we need to communicate to people like little Jimmy so they can grow up knowing and experiencing true worship. Because Jesus says that's the kind of people God is seeking 
to worship in spirit and in truth. Determine what's going on inside of us. The externals, the music, the prayers, the rest of it merely provide a way to express what God is doing and means in our life. Which means we have control over whether we worship or not. You have control whether you're at worship this morning or not. R.A. Torrey said, Worship is asking nothing from God, seeking nothing from God, but merely occupied with God and satisfied with God. The burden falls on us individually. Are we meeting God? Is our time helping us draw near to him? God is spirit. Those who worship him must do so in spirit and in truth. Or as someone else said, the eye is receptive to light, the ear to sound. The man who truly wants to worship God must be in harmony with him because God is spirit and we must worship him in spirit. And we must worship him in truth. As he truly is, as he reveals himself, not as we want him to be or wish him to be or have some vague notion he might be, as he reveals himself in his word and through his son. In truth means we're being honest about ourselves also. Laying ourselves before God as he peels back the layers of our life and touches us. Many in Israel and Samaria thought worship was seen in the way they could get what they want. Drawing attention to themselves either. Showing what a good person they were what good things they did, what they gave to others. Jesus talks about that numerous times when he talks about a rich man's offering versus the widow's might, or not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing, or praying and fasting not before men to be seen by them, but in secret, because it's what's in here that God cares about. In truth, in honesty, worship that centers on technique, on styles, on practices, on feelings. Ultimately, it's about us. It's not about God. Worship, Oswald Sanders said, is the adoring contemplation of God as he revealed himself in Christ and in Scripture. Most of all, worship in truth means worshiping the one who is true. Jesus said, I am the truth. He's the one who suffered, who died for our sins the one who was raised from the dead to bring us victory and sets us free. He's the one who ascended into heaven where one day he will return to take up his people, both the living and the dead, Scripture says. And he's the one whom it says every knee shall bow and every tongue confess is Lord. He's the one waiting for us to kneel, to bow before him, to worship. True worship flows from that relationship. Because as A.P. Gibbs said, worship is the Christian's highest occupation. 